Hello, and welcome back to the first episode of season two of the Land Party Lawyers podcast, the only podcast that hits issues at the intersection of video games, law, and business. I am your host, Nick Brown, and joining with me is my co-host and partner in law and crime, Stephen Blickensdurfer. I agree with you there until you said partners in crime. I disclaim any crimes. Otherwise, I agree with you there. <laughs> Smart answer. We'll, we'll keep that offline. But here we are back at the beginning of season two. We've spent the entire off-season fighting legal battles and working hard to bring you hot new video game content. And we figured what better way to come back and start season two than by going big and hitting what might be the biggest shift in the video game industry, the biggest change in the past 15 or 20 years. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about games as a service, which is a huge shift in the model for selling and producing games. It's the idea of going from games being treated as goods to games being treated as services, which as hopefully we will convince you over the next few minutes, has major practical, legal, and revenue consequences for everybody in the industry. So Steve, why don't you take it away and help everybody understand uh, how, how'd we get here? So it's important in thinking about and talking about games as a service to understand how we got here. Where did it all start? So you used to go to your retailer, uh, for me it was Toys R Us back in the day, to buy a physical game cartridge, okay? Uh, for me, it was Nintendo. You're uh, not going there today. Then, no, not going there anymore. Uh, <laughs> but you used to get a physical heart, you know, cartridge, cost 60 bucks. It sometimes would have uh, flaws and errors in code because nobody's perfect, um, but you would otherwise get a complete game. Put it inside your, your console and you'd be playing it, and then as soon as you took it out, there's no more game, right? Then, you know, something like the internet started to proliferate and, be, and, and create the opportunity for digital distribution of games, okay? So then you had the advent of the Steam Store, which really was a, a wonderful... Uh, progress that was made for... You might call it a game changer. A uh, game changer, exactly. I like it. I like what you did there. Um, for the industry, because now you have in one place, because I don't know if you remember this, Nick, but PC games came in a huge box, massive box. And inside that box was just like a, a, a small little you know instruction manual and then the disc, uh, which well, often was... cool art and stuff too. I, I'm kind of sad that you got to pay extra to get that nowadays. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, I'm just talking about the grossly oversized PC box <laughs> that you right. that I saw once, uh, you know, on a wall. You, you could you can make some really cool pop art pop art out of it now. But that was so you couldn't just put it in your jacket and waltz <laughs> out with it. I suppose. So you know, in lieu of having to store those boxes, right? Now, then Steam came along and started uh, digitally distributing games. And so you had it all on your computer, right? Everything was digital. And so with that progression, the opportunity to add on and fix the game through a later download that came with that game uh, was possible. So not to mention getting new content for the game, right? Right, right. So this in the form of DLC uh, or, or right. Whatever. I was just going to say downloadable content DLCs became a thing. At first, they were an exception to the rule, and then they kind of just became more and more commonplace. Uh, whether it was because the expectation was that games were going to start getting fixed because DLCs contain new content, it also contained hot hot fixes and and otherwise. Uh, fixed flaws and bugs in games. So we kind of shifted to then there was this uh, distribution of, of 
you know, the game after the game was purchased and, and otherwise made available. And so as you develop that, you know, the flow kind of went into having more robust DLC and content to the point where it was no longer free. Then there became a purchase downloadable content, which was basically like buying a point, uh, the half of a game, right? Or that's what it kind of felt like at first. You were buying an extra chapter or an extra dungeon. And then it right. became where DLC was becoming huge to the point where it felt like you were almost getting a 2.0 of the game before. Right, and they've really taken advantage of that in the terms of now DLC means so many different things. It could just mean uh, bug fixes and balancing changes because it, it's downloaded, but it also is whole new content drops over time, uh, entire expansions to the game. Uh, it, it really, or it could be something as simple as as a new cosmetic, uh, you know, suit that they've given uh, to to mark some, you know, either charitable event or or just some other event like. Uh, getting, for example, they were just selling, I think, uh, DLC that had to do with the Australian wildfires that we've been seeing recently. And the uh, they, they would take the proceeds from those and they would apply them to charitable purposes. So it, it really spans the gamut. But now, you know, now that it's so common, many games now come out with a roadmap of future content because they're now expected to be played and changed long term. And in fact, people now even expect this to the point where you know, a lot of the game reviews that I see expressly are based on the expectation of future service. Right. So it's not uncommon now. You'll see a game review that it'll go through the, you know, the review of the game or whatever they thought. And you'll see something at the end like, yeah, it's fun now, but let's see how this develops over time. Let's see if it's enough to keep people's attention. Or on the other hand, if a game is poorly received when it comes out, uh, we can all think of a number of examples of that. The reviews might say something like, skip this one for now. It's not worth picking up, but check back after a major update or two. Come back in a month or two, and we'll have an updated review that'll that'll tell you whether the game's worth playing by then, which is something that didn't exist back when we were buying cartridges. And this doesn't only affect the player or the person who's reviewing a game. This also affects the game company or the people who are developing the games. If you th consider you know, games that are put out there on Kickstarter or the GoFundMe campaigns, they'll actually sometimes say, this is what the base game in concept will look like. And then we also have plans to drop content later um, in the form of DLC or an extra whatever uh, they'll call it. So the, it's kind of built in and laced into the game. And why is that? It's Well, it's become a way of funding the development of these games because of the way in which you can monetize the extra downloadable content or this extra service that comes after uh, with the game. It's become a, a, a source of revenue, which is, is actually much one. needed because if you think about it, going back to the history, the game used to cost just 60 bucks. Well, I don't know who put, who chose 60 bucks, but we kind of were stuck on that figure for a long time. We always saw, we always kind of accepted that that's how much a video game should cost. Well, today, these video games... To be are, clear, my, my parents never accepted that that's how much a video <laughs> game should cost. Yeah, I would always like to think it would cost less. Uh, 30 bucks was always a good number for me, but... <laughs> no, but I mean, you can't sustain a model where you're, where you're selling AAA titles, especially the ones we see these days, for 60 bucks a pop. And well, the budgets are in the hundreds of millions. Right, and these games are oftentimes outselling and outperforming uh, Hollywood blockbuster films, right? I think the, the biggest digital entertainment product is not like the Titanic. 
I think it's uh, it's Grand Theft Auto Five, right? Yep. So it's it's sold on last gen consoles, sold on current gen consoles, sold on PC, and uh, made a ton of money. Right. And but how do you how do you budget for that? Right. Without maybe um, now now you consider games as a service. You consider extra content at the end uh, or after the game has been launched to further sustain and build on what you've already done. So some, and, and this runs the gamut, right? We're, we're speaking in generalities. Some content that you provide after the game has been released is cosmetic only. Skins, new guns that don't really impact the gameplay or that they're balanced, uh, new characters, different, like, different things like that, but things that you pay for, right? Because we're talking voiceover about- Voiceover packs. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, some is the basis for future content, right? You can you can picture these days what we increasingly are seeing are battle passes, season mm-hmm. passes, where depending on the game, it can run anything from within this season, you can have access to this progression model, uh, and you can get these types of skins, these types of guns, or whatever, uh, or you can get this particular content, whereas if you were just free, you know, playing normally and not getting that, uh, you wouldn't have access to that. Right, and the seasons are conveniently limited time. So you have to buy the battle pass for this season or buy the game pass, and then the season's going to roll over, and you'll have to buy another one. And if you zoom out and look at it from a more macro perspective, it works a lot like a subscription where you're paying over time for a certain limited period of time of content, and then it'll roll over and you can buy it next time or not. Right. The bottom line is this stuff is not going away. And this right? is a, See, this is a trend that we're seeing elsewhere, right? Amazon, we, we get subscription for our toilet paper. Uh, at least I know you do. Uh, we're <laughs> Disney plus, uh, office, get enough. <laughs> office 365, Adobe. These are all turning in. Now we're increasingly having subscriptions uh, as opposed to just getting the product and then buying it in a year or two when the new one comes out. Right. With Disney Plus uh, getting popular and, and other products that we're used to you know, historically buying individually are now going to subscription services too. Adobe software is offered on a subscription. Office 365 is office offered on a subscription. And there's a reason for this. There's a reason why yeah. more and more companies are and, and models are going to a subscription service. And that is? Right. And it's because they're all going green, Steve. Green. Oh, well, I that, care about the environment too. So that's, that's well, what I mean important. is it makes them a ton of money. Oh, that kind uh, of green. <laughs> Digital River uh, estimates that games as a service has, in fact, tripled the industry's value. And wow. in fact, they said that uh, whereas it didn't exist a few years ago, by 2016, 25% of the revenue of games on the PC results of one form or another of games as a service. Yeah, That a is deal. a huge, huge deal. Um, and as one little, little factoid, uh, they put out that EA, Electronic Arts, the, the company, earned approximately $2 billion with a B from games as a service transactions and th- in 2018 that's just one alone. company that's just one company one company one year yeah. so it's not surprising that it's very popular among the developers and the publishers mm-hmm. it also in the same vein um, not just makes them a bunch of money but it cuts down on piracy and fraud uh, many games for example have to connect to you know the developers or the publishers servers in order to work sometimes it's referred to as always online and that probably costs them a little bit of money to have those servers run, but it means they lose a lot less money 
from from the game being pirated. And so they end up retaining more of their capital than than they otherwise would have been able to do. Right. It's a lot harder to copy a game that is constantly evolving and connected to a server where you need to check in and have a valid key in order to continue to be able to play, right? Uh, right. So that it's an obvious plus, uh, but you know it also has the, the negative side of always having to be connected, and you know so there's pluses and minuses. But that's definitely a reason for the trend towards towards games as a service. It also allows uh, game companies to get funding for games, and and games may be made that might all not otherwise be made, right? And so I'm thinking in the free to play model of games, exactly. Which really you can't talk about games as a service without mentioning the free to play model. And what is that? That's a game that is free. You literally can go and download it. A lot of a lot of these are mobile titles, and that's right. really where you see a lot of the free to play model succeed. But it's but, not limited to mobile titles. It, no, you know, I have one on my I have one on my computer. Right, Hearthstone is a free to play model that uh, right. I I started off very staunchly saying I wouldn't I wouldn't pay any money towards it. I was going to be good free to play style. You know, free to play yeah, it was, is it's it was almost like a badge of honor. You said that I, it was really uh, <laughs> it, it hasn't worked the, out too well for me. <laughs> not a very at all. naive. Uh, it, it displayed a beautiful innocence, Stephen. Yeah. Yeah, so. uh, but, you know, the point Steve's making is a good one, which is on these free to play games, even if, you know, the, the the model works like this, the give give away the game for free. So they're missing out on the $60 buy in, right, that a lot of people would be giving. But at the same time, they're increasing their exposure because a lot of people are going to be able to download the game because it doesn't have a $60, you know, uh, entrance fee. You can try it. And, Right, you can try it out. That's the big see big how deal. it is exactly. And they spend a lot of time on the first few minutes of the game to make sure it's really enjoyable because then they get you hooked, and then you'll keep playing the game, and you'll spend money on microtransactions in the game, either some type of currency or skins or something. And what we've seen is that these games are typically uh, supported by what are called in the industry whales, and that does not refer to how the people look. It refers to the fact that. <laughs> Uh, you know, there there are a few people that are going to play these games and they're going to think it's just the coolest thing in the whole world and they're going to spend a ton of money on the game. Right. Uh, we'll see most people that play free-to-play games don't spend any money on it. A small percentage of people spend, you know, what we might think of as a reasonable amount of money, a few bucks or the, the cost of a, a, a paid game. And then there's this tiny percentage of whales that just go bonkers and spend a bunch of money supporting the game. And those people actually drive the development and the revenue of the game. For example, uh, I'd be interested to know how much you've spent on Hearthstone now, Steve. I asked you that last year, and you didn't want to tell me. So I, I can only assume that it's better this year. I still don't want to tell you. I still <laughs> am going to avoid that question. So It's okay. I'm, I'm probably a whale for Pokemon Go. So, oh, uh, yeah. Let's talk keep about our that. Numbers to ourselves. <laughs> no, but of course, this impacts game budgets too, right? Yeah, I was, I was means... just—I was just going to say that. You know, yeah. now now when you're developing these games, you think about how much can you make at the back end uh, when you're selling extra content uh, in game or just you know new downloadable content or a season pass. Um, so that ex that means you can monetize the the PM the, the the sunset part of the game, but you just can't fund the game or support the game through release. So there's kind of a flip side to it. You have to dedicate staff and you have to have a team beyond the initial development and publication to support the game. 
You're going to need a, a communications manager, someone who's communicating to the community, because you better believe there's going to probably be a subreddit created by your about your game, and there's going to be a very vocal community that wants to know how and how often you're going to be updating and creating new content, um, and, and if there's good quality content, and and so on and so, so forth. So it's a pro and a con, right? On the one hand. Back in the day, they just had to put all their effort into release and getting that cartridge out, and then they never had to worry about it again. Right. Uh, but now, you know, they can make a lot of extra money after release if they handle it right, but it's also going to cost more money to fund it and support it going forward. Right. You can have a great game at launch, and then if you just handle the the, the release and the, the service aspect of the game afterwards, it could be bad. Right. So, and you also can do the flip side. You can have a bad launch. You can have a game that's full of bugs, but if you fix it, right, with a with a good content on the on the back end, you can f you can adjust and pivot and really do a good job. So. Yeah, we saw a famous example of that with No Man's Sky. Uh, apparently, it made a lot of promises pre-release, and when it released, people felt as though those promises had not been satisfied. But then later on, they ended up putting out a big update, a number of updates that changed the game. And I understand now people are pretty happy with it. Right. Uh, that sort of thing is, is that's, that's a famous example. Another, but another great, great example, Anthem, right? They, they did a great job fixing that game. No, no, wait. Oh, uh, well, I they, haven't heard it. They, they, they didn't do that. They didn't. I only heard about the bad release. So <laughs> I'll, I'll rely on you for no, that. No, no, I'm joking. You obviously didn't but, get but my But this joke. has led to a change in consumer expectations, right? Because you know that the state the game's in at release isn't necessarily representative of the long term. And it leads people to often wait to buy the game because they know that they may be getting a better or more fulsome product if they just wait. I found a statistic that said, on average, United States PC players wait at least 21 days after, not release, but deciding they want the content to buy it yeah. in the hope of getting a better deal. Um, and I, I just got to shout out real quick to the Patient Gamers subreddit. Uh, there's a lot of wise people on there that are making good financial decisions, even though they're missing out on some of the, the day one content. I, I fell in this category without even knowing it because I was just not having enough time in law school, for example, or earlier in my career, even now, to, to play these games. I was going to so, say, you have less time now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, so I was, it was great, right? Every Steam sale would come around and I just collect games from like five years ago at a discount. But Right, and so on the one hand, people have learned to look beyond the launch week troubles, expecting that the game will mature over time, but on the other, it also raises the bar for post-release support. It's no longer enough just to release a good game. People expect you to support it later. So what does this mean? What does this mean to you know, the, the legal side? Uh, it's always been a big debate among you know, principled academic individuals like Stephen and myself. Are games goods or services? What are you getting when you're buying it? Of course, case law has never really been settled on whether games are goods or services. Right, Steve? No, no, I, I haven't been able to figure this out one way or the other looking at the cases. So, and, and what does that mean? Like, what does it matter if it's a good or a service? Well, that's an excellent question, Steve. I, I'm really glad you asked that. I, I'm actually almost, prepared to talk about it. It's almost like I knew where you were going. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, it's like we finish each other's Sentences? sandwiches. Um, there's a big difference between the two, which is uh, under the law, goods have their own set of rights that come with them. When you, when you buy goods, you get a certain chunk of rights. This is sometimes referred to as a bundle of sticks, right? You get this bundle. Each stick represents a different right. 
One is the right to use the product. Another is the right to exclude others from using the product. Another would be the right to destroy the product. You know, you you'd have the right your to- sticks? Hey, you know, they're mine. I can do whatever I want with them. I, I can make it, a nice fire. I, guess I can put the them up on the wall. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's why I buy a stick. Uh, but, and, and it, at the same time, it triggers a lot of existing legal doctrines uh, because people have been buying and selling goods for generations and, and for, for hundreds of years. Uh, one of them, a, a big one, is uh, something called the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code, is a big body of law that applies just to the sale of goods. And it, it exists because people don't always write up a contract when they sell a good. And so this body of law kind of comes in and fills in the gaps based on what we've seen over the course of human history. Uh, it also triggers certain consumer protection measures and, and things that uh, we all are kind of used to when we buy a good. Uh, another you know, crucial point about this is that goods are subject to the first sale doctrine. Now, what is the first sale doctrine? It's uh, an intellectual property doctrine. It applies to copyright, and it is basically what allows you to resell things that you buy. It's the reason that used bookstores can exist. So it's like basically, a it's almost like a defense to being able to do something. If someone said, "Oh, you can't do X," or "You can't sell a book," but then right. a used so bookstore comes around and says, "Yes, I can," because of this doctrine. Right. So, or, you know, things that are copyrighted, like books or video games, uh, the copyright belongs to the owner. But what the good, the first, I'm sorry, the first sale doctrine steps in when you buy a copyrighted good, like a book or a video game. And it says someone who buys a copy of a copyrighted work, legit, does so legitimately, Steve, not downloading it on your Napster or whatever else you got going on. There. I don't think they even still have Napster, Nick. Get with the times. <laughs> uh, so someone who buys a legitimate copy of a copyrighted work, you also get the right to sell, display, or otherwise dispose of that particular copy, notwithstanding the interest of the copyright owner. So that's why GameStop has been so successful for so long in, in reselling used games. Even though games are copyrighted, you're allowed to go in and sell them because uh, the first sale doctrine has, has applied. And, and when you're referring to goods here, just a point of clarification, you're referring to just things that are physical, uh, tangible goods, or you're also referring to like software code? Well, that's, that's a good point because goods can be tangible or intangible, but part of the issue here is that software kind of falls in the middle. Software hasn't been figured out yet by legislators and courts and judges, and so that's why this question you know, comes into play. Uh, however, if it ends up being a service, then the whole landscape has changed, mm -hmm. right? If it's not a good, then different rules apply. Yeah, so services are more in control of the, the servicer, right? The person who's providing the services, and they could subject what they're doing to a contract. Uh, any service provision, any provider of services is going to pretty much reduce what they're doing to a contract. And in, in the context of video games, you have end-user license agreements, or EULAs, that are typically what you see that dictate what a person can and cannot do uh, with with a with a product, right? With a service that comes after the game or the or the intangible good. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, because you might, can't own a service, right? You can only get access to it, right? Or, or I mean, like it might come to a shock for some, but when you buy a video game uh, or any digital asset, 
well, I'm not going to say any digital asset. I'm going to stick with video games for now because I don't generalize too much. But you don't own the software, right? You don't own the code. You basically are paying to get a license to, to use it uh, pursuant to a you know, strict set of terms that are set out by the game company, the developer, the, the, the publisher in the EULA, right? Um, and oftentimes these EULAs are pretty rest restrictive on what you can do, uh, these post-sale activities. Um, you can't open up a store and start you know, copying and selling the code, right? Which is akin to what a bookstore would do with used books or GameStop would do with used games, right? Um, and, and this is particularly becoming more and more relevant as the digital distribution of games is overtaking the physical right. sale of games, right? So we no longer are getting cartridges, although you can buy them sometimes, right? You can buy them for the Switch, for example, or you can buy a digital download of the game. And so that actually has an impact on whether you could resell the game or, or not. That's where you have uh, the restrictions on the use, and it particularly is more and more important in uh, when when games are starting to become more and more services, okay? And so EULAs, what, what are they? They're basically contracts, right? They're electronic or e-contracts, and they e-contracts take various forms, okay? The first is a shrink wrap agreement. That's the type of agreement found within the services classically within the sealed packaging where you cannot see the terms of the agreement until after you purchase or use the services or product. The next is a browse wrap agreement. That's when the there's usually a hyperlink at the bottom of a website or page that links you to the agreement and you don't have to click anything in order to say I accept. Usually your use of the product or service is the basis for the assent. Next is a click wrap agreement. Those are uh, often the most common, where the end users are required to manifest assent by clicking I OK or I agree, where there's a link to the terms of service next to that box. And if you say no, you can't proceed to use the product or service. And finally, and by the way, there are many of these types of agreements, but I'm just going over four. Uh, the last I'll go over is the scroll wrap agreement, and that requires the user to actually scroll through the terms of the agreement before that checkbox is even available so that they can click whether or not they ex accept. Right. The, the point, though, is that there's a bunch of different forms. Oh, man. And, and they're confusing because some are hybrids. Yeah, you don't even see a lot of them until after you've purchased the product. You, you paid for it, and then you download it and install it. And once you go to play it, you say, oh, by the way. Here's a bunch of limitations. You right. didn't actually buy that game. Well, and the important point here, right, is e-contracts are contracts. The law will consider an e-contract as enforceable as a regular contract with some caveats, right? E-contracts, particularly how they're presented to consumers, and depending on how they're presented to the consumer, may be more or less uh, more like looked at harshly, right? So the agreement that requires you to scroll through it before you can even select the option whether you accept, the reason we even have those is because at one point a court rejected an, you know, a, an agreement that you didn't have to scroll through, right? And to make it more enforceable, uh, someone came around and, you know, probably with a lawyer decided this is the better path to, so you can show that the person actually Requires went through some and kind at of it. investment right makes it more likely you can establish that they knowingly and voluntarily agreed to the terms and didn't just pass by it that's right and, and so you know you can't claim ignorance you didn't read the contract that's a pretty well established legal doctrine that you know if, if it's been presented to you that you can't in a reasonable way say like there's no way anybody would have seen this right if you if it would have been presented to you you had to click through and acknowledge it 
um, it's pretty much going to be you read, you are deemed to have read those terms. So anyway, all that said, by treating games as a service, publishers and developers have more control to restrict their use of the software and the, and the traditional good that was one, once was. Uh, because they never even sold it, right? All right. they sold you is a limited, carefully defined right to use the product in a specific way. Right. Right. And, and that's, you know, it, it has different, imp, different evaluations depending on what side you're standing on. But one benefit for the developers is that it can be used to get around certain issues that are a lot harder to avoid when you're selling a good, like termination of access. If someone's misusing your product and they've got it out in the world, it's kind of hard to, to make them stop using it, uh, at least outside of legal process. But if you've got a, uh, an agreement that says I can foreclose your access at my sole discretion anytime, and I've got you playing the game on my cloud-based server, then I can just find your account and shut it down. It also is a mechanism to push back on some of the consumer protection elements that apply to other goods. Uh, like, for example, your EULA can say, uh, there are no class actions about this. You're only going to bring a, a, a case in arbitration or something like that. And so it essentially gives more ability to streamline the use and restrict the use of the games. Yep. It also, you know, also raises other interesting, or at least interesting to legal nerds, uh, legal issues. Like, for example, there's this thing out there called the undertaking doctrine. Do you know what that is, Steve? I do not. So it's no, a legal I really doctrine. do, but I was just playing along <laughs> with you. I just hope you know I know, that. I kind of okay. set you up for that. <laughs> um, it's a legal doctrine, and, and it says basically this. You don't have to do stuff for other people. You don't have to render services to other people. But if you do, if you undertake to do a thing for someone else, you can then be liable for harm that are caused in rendering those services, even if you didn't have to do them in the first place, right? right? And, you know, it's kind of an analogy to like some of the law that says, you know, if you see someone hurt on the side of the road, you don't have to help them. But if you do help them, you can't make it worse. You can get in trouble if you make it worse. And this is kind of like that. Um, and it could become relevant here, right? Because by you don't have to provide ongoing post-release support for your games that you're developing. But if you do, then someone might be able to argue that you've undertaken the obligation to do it in a competent and fulsome manner consistent with consumer expectations. That's just like the Good Samaritan doctrine that says if you're going to help somebody, you don't have to help them, right? You can leave them on the side of the road. But if you do, you can't hurt them, right? Uh, right. Or else you're going to be liable exactly. to them. So And that argument gets easier to make the more games shift into a games as a service right, model right. as opposed to a goods model. Right. So let's let's talk a little bit about some takeaways. And I want to start first with uh, some takeaways for game companies. And I think the big takeaway here is as we are moving to a model that's games as a service, that means that the traditional EULA that once was kind of an afterthought that came with the game because it just governed the use of the game uh, on the computer or wherever it was being locally installed, needs to incorporate more of the software as a service provisions and thoughts about, you know, really it's it's transforming these into subscription agreements, right? If you think about it that right. way. And so what does that mean? The terms need to uh, account for access and use of the game over the course of, of the services period. What does the services period look like? That needs to be thought about. That could and should probably need to be spelled out in the agreement. Uh, this is particularly if the game is played on the cloud and not locally stored on the computer, right? So are there also terms that govern the maintain maintenance and availability of the game uh, during downtime? 
another important consideration. Um, also, about, what about the customer's right to use uh, the software as a service uh, at the termination of the agreement? What does it look like when the services end uh, with respect to the rights of the, of the end user? And what happens to the data, right? I'm a, I'm a data privacy guy. I do that a lot uh, for, for clients. Uh, what happens with the, the storage of the data at the end of the services? Is there any data that's going to be flowing uh, to and from the game or the local, local computer? Uh, the, anyway, all, all this to say the agreement should anticipate the unique differences between the traditional model and where we're going, the subscription model, as it pertains to games. Uh, so one last point on this, and, and I'll let you switch to maybe takeaways for the consumer, is that agreements, uh, the, these whole e-contract wrap agreements, typically are not drafted uh, evenly, right? There's, there's kind of just the game company is drafting and putting it out there. Uh, you don't want yeah, it to be... They're not negotiated. They're drafted on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. That's right. And so the, the law construes those contracts uh, against the drafter uh, more often than not, usually. Uh, so it's important not to overreach and insert reasonable terms in those contracts. Right, because you could say, oh, well, I'm in control here and put bizarre, wacky, strongman things into your contract only to have them invalidated because they're off the charts unreasonable, which right. would defeat the whole purpose. Right. So on the other side of that is, of course, the user side, the consumer side. The most important thing I think to understand is, is for you to understand when you're buying a game, uh, know what you're getting because nowadays you probably don't actually own much. What you're getting is not ownership rights in a product. What you're getting is a license to use a service in a very specific way. And that can have a lot of implications. So it's important. I know this is the terrible lawyer answer that nobody wants to hear, but it is a good idea to read those EULAs and read those terms of service. Especially if you have trouble sleeping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it may actually have a, a, a side benefit. Um, there you go. But you know, take a look at them, especially for things like monetization. Uh, you know, I know we have a lot of streamers that listen to our podcast and streamers that are on varying levels of revenue. Some people do it more for fun. Some people, they actually make their living doing that. And so uh, it's important to know what you're allowed to do with the games. An example that we saw come up and kind of hit the, uh, you know, the, the airwaves last year was whether or not you're allowed to stream games on private servers. Uh, some games will allow you to stream them, but only if it's done for free. Other games don't have that same restriction. And so especially if there's money involved and you're, you're making income off of it, uh, then that makes you more of a target, and it's important, even more important, to know the rights that you're getting. Good points. Well, I think that wraps up today's episode. Be sure to check out our other episodes from Season 2 and also Season 1 because those are still relevant, and you should check them out. Uh, you can connect with us on our Instagram page or on our webpage, landpartylawyers.com. And, Nick, unless you have anything to add... I think that's a, that's a wrap. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all the wonderful five-star reviews you've been giving us. Unsolicited. And Appreciate it. Un unsolicited un until now. And, uh, you know, until then, until next time. Game on. Game on. You've been listening to the Land Party Lawyers podcast series with Steve Blickensturfer and Nick Brown. To learn more about our e-gaming and e-sports practice, visit carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation.
The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.